Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. This week we are joined by Dr. Hayley McEwen, who is a senior fellow at the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right and a senior researcher at the WITS Centre for Diversity Studies. Thanks for joining us, Hayley. Hi, Cam. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you and Andy for your show. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what it is you research at WITS and uh, how you came to research it? Sure, sure. Well, um, as you and your listeners might hear in my voice, I um, I am an American <laughs> um, based in South Africa, and I've been I've been living in South Africa since 2005. And it was in about 2008 when same-sex marriage was legalized in South Africa, of course, making it one of the first countries in the world and the first country in Africa to legalize same-sex marriage. Around that time, I, I started to hear a lot of things in the media, right-wing commentary and criticism of the legalization of same-sex marriage. And in these, these discourses that started circulating, you know, for example, people saying, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or things like homosexuality or same-sex marriage are going to destroy our nation and society. I, I started to feel that these were very familiar narratives that I had been, that I grew up around in the United States and where there is a very active and very powerful U.S. Christian right and, and so-called family values movement. So when I started hearing these kinds of anti-gay narratives and rhetoric in South Africa, it really sent a chill down my spine because it all felt so familiar. And, and just knowing how influential the U.S. Christian right has been in terms of their, their agendas against women's reproductive rights, LGBTI rights, uh, it, it made me very concerned about the potential impact that, that, that this could potentially have in, in South Africa. So I started to do some research looking at, is there a connection between the U.S. Christian right and, and what we were seeing at that time in South Africa? And sure enough, I, I did find that there was a connection mainly through the research of a Zambian scholar named Kapia Kauma, who has done a lot of work investigating the ways in which the U.S. Christian right has been mobilizing anti-gay and anti-feminist politics in African countries. 
So that's where it all started. That was back in 2013. I've continued to do this research since then. And if I can just say, in the course of that time, I've only seen this so-called pro-family movement gain power and influence in the region oh, yeah, over the course of that those these years that I've been doing this research. How secure are things like same-sex marriage in South Africa? Is there a chance that these groups and organizations could eventually mobilize enough support to roll those back? I think the case of same-sex marriage in South Africa, I mean, it actually, there, there actually is a bill at the moment to have one form of marriage that's recognized in the country, because at the moment, same-sex marriages and polygamous marriages are recognized as civil unions and not marriage. And there is an attempt being made now to create one single marriage act that legislates all of these different kinds of unions. But, it, you know, it's not a matter of same-sex marriage being thrown into question or anything like that. So it is, I think, in South Africa quite secure. But, of course, it's, you know, South Africa does largely remain, remain an exception around this. And several other African countries do not recognize same-sex marriage. There's a big case happening at the moment in Namibia where the court the judge in the high court said that although she agrees that these couples should have their marriages recognized, the Supreme Court does not recognize same-sex marriage. But there's a battle going on there right now. But, but really what we've been seeing in South Africa over the past 10 years is an attack on uh, what is called comprehensive sexuality education, which is, is really education for young people in schools about bodily autonomy, their sexual and reproductive health and rights, basically trying to equip young people and provide them with knowledge that can enable them to make informed decisions about their lives. And there's a, a huge recognition in the region amongst people in government that this is so needed, uh, especially, especially in the wake of the pandemic, where we've seen alarmingly high numbers of pregnancy amongst school-aged girls, and and also just generally, you know, issues that we have in the region around gender-based violence and harm, transmission of sexually transmitted infections, etc. So there is a recognition in the region that this is needed, and the attempts by governments in, in Eastern and Southern Africa to make sexuality education available for young people, as well as support services have been met with a growing counter movement that's also being led by U.S. Christian right organizations to get government to basically create panic and alarm about comprehensive sexuality education and, and trying to lobby governments to revoke their commitments to sexuality education and to make them really ultimately change their their minds about it and so that there will only be, you know, abstinence-only education in schools, which doesn't recognize the realities of our, our context here. Haley, what do you think is at stake for the Christian right in the United States and South Africa and elsewhere in relation to these issues? Why has the family or a particular notion of the family emerged as such a central focus of their campaigning and, and politicking. Right. I mean, that is the ultimate question, right? Like what is at stake, you know, and, and clearly there is something at stake. I mean, Open Democracy published a report in 2020 
showing that I believe it was between 2017 and, and 2020. I could be wrong. But they found that U.S. Christian right groups have spent at least $280 million promoting anti-LGBTI and anti-feminist agendas around the world. And a huge share of that investment has gone to African countries, right? So there is obviously a huge financial investment that's being made. Also, you know, these U.S. Christian right groups, for example, Family Watch International, which is based in a suburb in Arizona, has become the most influential so-called pro-family group in Africa, but also at the United Nations, okay? And the United Nations and the human rights framework have become targets of these pro-family or, as critics call them, you know, anti-rights or anti-gender groups. Yeah, the UN's become a, a big focus in their, in their activism, trying which you know they're really trying to discredit the work that the United Nations is doing around sexual and reproductive health and rights but other issues more broadly also they've been US Christian right groups have been mentoring african politicians they've brought political and religious leaders to the united states to mentor them to become so-called pro family you know advocates in their own countries and within the United Nations. So we can see, and also they've, they've set up satellite organizations. So we have, for example, uh, Focus on the Family, which is, is one of the leading pro-family groups in the United States. It was formed and established in the 1970s, but they've, they've established a Focus on the Family based here in South Africa. There's also an organization called Citizen Go, which is a Spanish far-right organization that they, they've established an Africa office in Kenya. Uh, so, I mean, we can see there's a lot of effort being made and investment going into spreading this agenda in African countries. And then we come back to your question, which is why, right? What is at stake for them? Why are they so interested in spreading their agendas all over the continent, uh, Latin America, Eastern Europe? What is really going on here? is, is the, the key question that we need to be asking. And, and I think there's, you know, several different answers for that. And I know we only have like half an hour, so I can't unfortunately get, get into all of these, these different reasons. But I think for me, his, looking back in history helps us to really see what, what is going on right now. We need to have a grip and understanding of the historical context from which the U.S. Christian right emerges in order to try and understand what it is that they are trying to do currently, right? So if we look back in our recent history and we look at the formation of the U.S. Christian right in the 1970s, in response to the sexual revolution. Some of the viewers of, or listeners, apologies, of this show may have seen the, the series Mrs. America, which I have to say, I think represented the kind of early days of this movement quite well in the sense that there, there was a, a counter movement forming amongst women, like middle-class white women in the suburbs against, you know, feminism. And then also just generally the, 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 power and the institution of, of patriarchy, not wanting there to be changes in, in terms of the 
sex and gender norms in the society, right? So, so this is where we start to see the formation of the U.S. Christian right back in the 1970s as a reaction to feminism, the women's rights movement, the women's health movement, gay rights. And, and then this movement, um, you know, it's continued to grow since then. Okay. And then it was in about the 19, it was in the 1990s. There were two very important UN conferences that took place in 1994 and 1995, where we started to see the rise of a global women's rights movement and, and the impact of this movement in terms of having more inclusive policy and, and policy language around around women's rights, around recognizing different kinds of families, you know, et cetera, these kinds of progressive values becoming discussed and debated at the UN and, and put into policy frameworks. So it was and also it's important to mention that the Vatican is a, a is a it's a member state of the of the United Nations. So the Vatican also has worked very closely with U.S. Christian right groups, increasingly so over the past three decades. And and it was, I, you know, as researchers have shown that it was through the, the Vatican and their participation at the United Nations that U.S. Christian right groups became alerted to the advances being made by women's rights and feminist groups, right, at the United Nations. And it was at that moment that they so-called, like, quote, unquote, woke up you know, and also put the United Nations on their agenda and realized that if they were going to be winning the battle against, you know, or, or to what they say is, you know, defending the nuclear family, if they were going to win the, the, the culture wars against feminists and queer activists, then they really needed to expand their horizons beyond the United States. So that helps us to see kind of the, the high level global geopolitics that are are a part of this this picture of what we see you know in a local context like South Africa or Namibia or Malawi where you have groups actively rallying against sexual and reproductive health and rights and education so there's that there's that dimension to it right and, and the importance of having allies create building allies and networks in especially in the global south in order to support these you know these pro family agendas within the united nations and what they're trying to do is really constrain re- retain a very restrictive idea of gender you know the idea that there's only two genders that gender nonconformity or fluidity or transgender status is is not valid that is what they are are really trying to 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 push and also very restrictive understandings of the family as as being defined exclusively as a heterosexual unit married couple with their own biological children which is also not a norm in Africa or other parts of the world the you know the nuclear family model is a very eurocentric construction and and this leads us back into a deeper history which is the history of colonial conquest, right? And and there's several, you know, feminist and queer historians, anthropologists, uh, artists who who are showing uh, the ways in which pre-colonial societies, even in, you know, North America, across Africa, in, in Latin America, did not practice 
a nuclear family model, right? There were extended kinship networks, extended families, different, you know, there was polygamous arrangements, you know, there, there have been all different kinds of kinship formations that have existed around the world and which continue to exist. But during the period of, of colonial conquest, right, the idea of the nuclear family model and the gender binary became imposed as forms of cultural imperialism uh, upon indigenous societies with the effect of really destroying the kinds of existing social net, social arrangements, social networking systems, support systems, you know, as a, as a way of, of really, yeah, destroying the, the, the ways in which indigenous societies were functioning, right? And, and these scholars who have written about this, for example, there's Maria Lujones from Argentina. There's Oyowumi Oyoronke, who's a Nigerian feminist. There's another scholars, Anne Laura Stoller and Sally Kitch, Anne McClintock, who are American feminist scholars, who have all shown the ways in which the gender binary was imposed. And as, as of, and it was the violence, they've shown the violence through which the gender binary and nuclear family models were imposed on indigenous societies. And, and they've shown through archival research how the gender binary became used by colonial governments as a measure of whether people were civilized or so-called savage, right? And in need of colonial missionary education and colonization and development, right? So this became used as a way also of racializing people. And it so it really showed, this history shows us how gender, race, and sexuality are so entangled within constructions of, you know, Eurocentric or Amerocentric Western power, authority, and knowledge. So, I mean, I think it's important. I mean, it's a long history to go back to, but it's that it's in that history where we can see the origins of the con- these contemporary discourses that are being spread by so-called pro-family groups around the alleged dangers of homosexuality to civilization. You know, they actually use this language of, of the nuclear family being a fundamental unit of civilization. I mean, that's a kind of mantra that they repeat over and over again. And also, you know, why they're saying that the any kind of gender fluidity or transgender people are are dangerous to to a society. I mean, it's it's in this colonial history that we have to go back to in order to understand what this is all about. Sorry for that very long answer. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's it's a complicated question. So thank you for that. Thank you for that question. You've mentioned the UN meetings to discuss various uh, rights, women's health and so on that took place in the 1990s. And also it seems that on the part of these so-called pro-family groups, they're often trying to sell their politics as being a manifestation of rights and in some contexts would even describe themselves as anti-imperialist because there's some sense in which these uh, notions of diversity and kinship uh, in sexuality, uh, these are being portrayed as being impositions of the West. I wonder if, if that effort has been successful and to what extent does defending oneself against these ideas and movements depend upon excavating this history and uh, the kinds of kinship systems that existed 
uh, in pre-colonial society. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that this pro-family movement has been very successful at doing in African contexts has been obscuring this colonial history, right? And and you've got to also question, you know, I mean, these you've got to question the whiteness of it all, right? Because these pro-family groups from the United States are primarily middle to upper class white Christian people. Although Sharon Slater, who is head of, uh, she's who established the Family Watch International, she's actually Mormon. But obscuring this colonial history has been really central to their strategy. And it's where we can also see how sophisticated this movement is. You know, it's, it's, and I'm sure in other, you know, discussions you've had on your show, this has come up, but, you know, it's often our mistake amongst, you know, the mistake amongst progressive people uh, or the left, you know, to think that far right groups are fringe or that they're not well organized, right? Um, Or that they don't think through their strategies because the things that they say, you know, often seem so outlandish. It doesn't seem like there's there's a lot of thought going into it, right? But there's a whole lot of thought going into it. And I think this what this exact point you've raised helps us to see that, you know, how they are really obscuring their own complicity in unequal power relations between the North and the South, or their own the, the ways in which their agendas are reproducing colonial relations of power. So the key ways in which they've done this, I mean, I think one of the main, the fact that we can just talk about two, you know, two key ways in which they've obscured their, the, the coloniality of pro-family politics is firstly by aligning this discourse with, you know, of course, Christian values. And, and that's an area which still, the, the colonial history of Christianity remains something that is not discussed enough in our context. Christianity often, you can say, quote unquote, like gets off the hook as a colonial, something that came from colonization here. I mean, it's it's not something that is is really discussed or critiqued, especially except for in the 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 progressive churches, right? The progressive kind of mainline churches, you'll find some critique of that colonial history and engagement with the colonial history. But otherwise, it's not something that's really part of the conversation when we're talking about decolonization, for example, which is a huge conversation in the region at the moment, right? Especially in South Africa, the, you know, decolonial politics, they're really, they're very, you know, kind of front center of, of, of our political discussions. But Christianity rarely comes into that conversation. And secondly, what the, what the movement, what, what pro-family activists do and is as they say that you know in order to grow your economy which is of course a priority in this region right they say in order to grow your economy and become internationally competitive and in order to become less dependent on the west you need to have nuclear families because, and, and you know, I, unfortunately, we don't have time to get into it, but they've also produced a lot of re- their own research. Pro-family groups, you know, produce their own research in pro-family research institutes like Family Research Council, for example, that try to prove that 
heterosexual nuclear families are good for the economy and that unmarried people, LGBTI people, and gender nonconforming people are actually economic liabilities. So they've done this kind of economic, they've made these kinds of economic arguments to, against LGBTI families and marriage and rights, et cetera, and, and women's reproductive rights. And in doing so, they, they really are, you know, making a huge effort to align themselves and position themselves as, yeah, being, being aligned with, with African priorities and people who are majorly concerned about the economy. But yeah, so that, so that's one. I mean, one of the ways is through also through the, this development, this this development imperative that they are constructing around the nuclear family as being beneficial for the economy, whereas all other kinds of family formations or people who don't get married at all and people who don't have children as being you know, economic liabilities. And and related to this effort is, as you say, I mean, their their efforts to construct themselves as being in line with human rights. And and we can see in the work that they've been doing, especially in the United Nations, how they've been using human rights languaging and frameworks in in order to actually turn those on their heads. So they're kind of using rights language against rights by saying, for example, that recognition of same-sex marriage, if we use that as an example, or comprehensive sexuality education, that it's, that it's it violates the cultural rights of people in, in African countries, for example. Which also, if we look historically, we can find precedents, you know, we can find examples of both. I mean, we can find examples of same-sex unions and, and gender fluidity in, in African history, like going back hundreds and hundreds of years. We can also find precedent for for ways in which people would teach and educate their children about sex and reproduction, you know. So, so neither of these are completely foreign, right, to African societies at all but that's that's really what they're they're trying to construct it as and also by by saying that same sex marriage gay rights comprehensive sexuality education that these are western impositions so so what they do is a kind of smoke and mirrors effect where the colonial history that they are connected to as pro family activists that becomes obscured while they draw everyone's attention to the United Nations and and they're busy, you know, constructing uh, and demonizing the United Nations as a contemporary form of cultural imperialism, Um, which, of course, is not so simply the case. I mean, for example, with, with comprehensive sexuality education, as I mentioned, there has been a demand for better education for young people and better services in relation to sexual and reproductive health and rights. And and the United Nations has been able to offer support in that regard. You know, it hasn't been a case of the United Nations coming and just dropping in comprehensive sexuality education. You know, there's really been a, a desire amongst, you know, ministries of education and ministries of health in Eastern and Southern Africa for this kind of education, because we have so many challenges around these issues. Haley, the shorthand online for a lot of uh, discussion around 
anti-gender activism is TERF, which seems to obscure a lot of the involvement of the Christian right in the matter. Uh, what's your understanding of the relationship between trans-exclusionary radical feminism and the sort of ideologies which are underpin- underpinning this anti-gender activism? Right. Good question. Thanks for that. Um, so I would not put them in the same camp at all. I would not put TERFs and anti-gender groups in the same category. When I talk about anti-gender or pro-family groups, I'm talking about an international network of anti-rights groups that are specifically mobilizing around issues of gender and sexuality, but which are connected to other issues like migration, for example, where you know you find in Eastern Europe they have actual pro-family policies where they're encouraging and yeah they're encouraging their own citizens to have more children like in Hungary where if you have four children you no longer have to pay income tax they're encouraging you know their own citizens to have children so that they do not have to become dependent on migrants because as we know i mean the the politics in the region are very much um against against migrants, right? It's very, you know, it's, it's ethno-nationalist kind of issue. So, but then TERFs, and I mean, in some of the conversations I've had with activists around this issue is that TERFs, so trans-exclusionary radical feminists, they need to be engaged by, you know, trans-inclusionary feminism. And we need to have this kind of conversation amongst ourselves, um, amongst people who, who want to kind you know, challenge and deconstruct heteropatriarchy. So and and heteronormativity. So that's an issue that I think, you know, it's something that, you know, you find TERFs will not necessarily align with pro-family groups because the pro-family groups are deeply heteropatriarchal. You know, they deeply want to preserve uh, the institution of marriage as a heterosexual union, you know, and I don't think that something that like, so like TERFs would subscribe to. However, there we're at a moment right now where there might be some people who, you know, we could call TERFs or, you know, people in that camp who are potentially moving closer to the pro-family position. So, yeah. So, and if I can also say, I mean, I would say, yeah, I guess a good way of putting it is that although TERFs might not necessarily openly align themselves, you know, with so-called pro-family groups, the pro-family groups love the TERFs. And they use the stuff that is being said by trans-exclusionary radical feminists to say, you know, look, we even, you know, we can even see in, in feminism that there are people who are totally against gender fluidity, transgenderism, and, and the deconstruction of the gender binary, right? So I think pro for like when it comes to TERFs, you know, they're more useful to the the pro family groups than the pro family groups are to the TERFs. So you have, you know, often and, and I mean again, the, the pro family people, they do their research, they follow these issues, and they they quote TERFs in in their in their speeches, you know, and, and they'll say, you know, there's even these these feminists who agree with us, you know, and we found feminists 
who we can agree with, you know, so it, it makes them actually look more respectable as a kind of, as a movement that is aligned with human rights and equality and, and things like that, even though their agendas really are deeply anti-rights, you know, and I think it's important we refer to them as such um, and not only as anti-gender because what in being anti-gender, they're attacking a whole host of different kinds of rights, you know, not only the rights of, of people to be affirmed and recognized as the, the gender that they identify as, but also they're they're very much attacking the children's rights movement. And, and, and in this promotion of the idea of the nuclear family, of course, is this idea that parents own their children um, and, and should, you know, be able to basically, you know, use corporal punishment on their children if they want and have total control over what their children learn in school and that their children should not have information or access to services that could be beneficial for their own lives. Haley, I, I do have a, two more questions, but um, the first one is to do with the relationship between uh, the specifically Christian and religious right and the secular right. And I know in your work you've referred to uh, the World Congress of Families. Mm-hmm. When they held an event here in Melbourne in 2014, uh, there was a series of public protests and some discussion about uh, the Congress and its work. But one of the results of that was that some of the more mainstream speakers, uh, they withdrew from the uh, Congress. And I'm wondering what opposition has um, the WCF in particular, but these groups in general uh, faced in Africa and what's the nature of the relationship between these uh, very specifically religious and Christian organisations and more secular and uh, I I suppose in one sense more mainstream uh, conservative political elements? It's an interesting question. In in South Africa, I mean, we, in, in 2017, it was in January of 2017, the World Congress of Families actually came to Cape Town where they relaunched themselves as the International Organization for the Family. And they invited delegates from around the continent. Um, it was not a major gathering of people. It wasn't a typical World Congress of Families gathering where they have thousands of people. I mean, there were, I think, probably about 50 to 100 people at this event maximum um, from what I've seen of the video footage that's available. And I have to say, you know, it feels like that event, really, it just, it happened. And then it was only afterwards that civil society really found out. And also because of the fact that it was like in January, it was kind of before things really kick into gear for the year. Yeah, this event had happened. And it was interesting as well, because in the year before that, in 2016, there was a a very radical far-right person from the United States who wanted to come to South Africa and do a kind of speaking tour against LGBTI rights. And there was a huge amount of outrage about this. Um, This person's you know, um, he had announced where he would be speaking on Facebook, where he was going to be staying, all of this stuff. And it caught a lot of attention. There was a huge amount of 
protest against him being allowed to enter the country. And as you know, Americans don't need to apply for a visa in advance to come into South Africa. They can just come here and get in on a three-month visa, right? So it actually took an effort on behalf of the Department of Home Affairs to keep this person out. But because of the huge amounts of civil society activism and protest against him visiting. And I mean, I think it was across the board. I wouldn't say it was only, you know, feminists and queer organizations who were trying to block him, but it became quite a, a big movement amongst, I think, people who are not usually engaged in politics to, to keep him out. And, and ultimately, they were successful in, in doing that. He was not allowed to enter the country. But then, as I mentioned, a few months later, in, in January 2017, there's this World Congress of Families event where they're rebranding themselves as the International Organization for the Family. There's delegates from around the continent here. And civil society only found out after the fact. You know, the, their papers reported on it, you know, like a week later, saying that this had already happened. So, yeah. So, I mean, in relation to that, I, I just find it an interesting story because it it happened so quietly. And I mean, in terms of the, you're asking me about like the opposition, like opposition against the World Congress of Families by the secular right, correct? The secular right. uh, Opposition to your support for. So So how have have mainstream conservatives so-called responded to these sorts of campaigns and, and these issues? Is there a common interest? Do they work together or are there significant differences of opinion? You know, from what I've seen, you know, I have not noted, I haven't seen or heard of or found any non-religious right-wing or or far-right activists or groups that support pro-family activism. It really, in this region, is a grouping of predominantly Christian activists. And even when, you know, we have an organization here called Freedom of Religion South Africa. Um, And I mean, of course, you've got religion in the title, so that definitely doesn't make it like completely secular, but they have a very kind of secular approach to trying to counter any kinds of legislative advances uh, around sex and gender-based rights. But when they, you know, when they are uh, making their cases, they often, you know, they talk about the importance of freedom of religion as a constitutional democratic value, you know, not necessarily as being, you know, they don't get into the biblical scripture around it, you know, it's pitched and, and presented in a very, in a way that, that makes it about, you know, legislation. And there it's another interesting connection um, because they really, although there's no, I have not yet found any evidence of this connection other than looking at how these organizations operate, but Freedom of Religion South Africa is a spitting image of the Alliance Defending Freedom in the United States, which has been responsible for high profile cases such as um, defending the baker, like the the bakeries that don't want to cook, bake, you know, wedding cakes for same sex couples, you know, it's it's a kind of that level of of advocacy that they do. So I wouldn't actually say that there is a significant secular right that is aligned with the U.S. Christian right in this context. Although I do believe that 
the movement itself is they're trying to get support uh, and grow their their networks beyond the the community of 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 people who would identify as you know, as Christians and as conservatives. But South Africa, you know, it is a very Christian nation. I mean, 80% of the country identifies as Christian. So there there is not really a a significant, yeah, I would say yeah, again, just there's not a significant secular right that is kind of aligned with them or anything. I mean, the majority of their support base or all of it from what I can see uses Christian values as the basis for their opposition to, you know, LGBTI rights, comprehensive sexuality, education, etc. Haley, a lot of this activity is is geared towards sustaining a particular notion of the the gendered order or the gender order, whether in the United States or Africa or elsewhere. And I was just wondering if you had considered what, if any, parallels could be drawn between this sort of campaigning and that which has emerged recently, which has been directed at or attacking the notion of critical race theory and the ways in which that particular body of thought seeks to preserve a certain kind of racial order. And I'm wondering, is is this uh, do these tendencies reinforce one another? And what do you understand as being the relationship between maintaining this gendered or gender order and, and a certain kind of um, racial order? It's, yeah, it's a very complicated question. And I think, you know, on the one hand, it's important. It, it, it helps us to see and, and thinking through this question, it helps us see the connections, not necessarily the parallels between attacks on gender studies and attacks on critical race theory, but rather their entanglement. So, you know, I think it's really important you raise this question about the attacks on critical race theory. And, and we have been able to see in, in the attacks on critical race theory by looking at the, the groups that are trying to discredit and remove critical race theory from school and university level curricula, that, that this attack on knowledge is directly related to an attack on rights, right? So by not being able to name racism through the the tools provided by critical race theory, then we cannot address the problem of racism. It really leaves those fighting for racial justice with very little that they can do if the language is stripped away, right, around institutional or systemic racism, for example. And and in terms of the attacks we are seeing, you know, the pro-family attacks on the kind of deconstruction of the gender binary, it's also directly related to an attack on gender studies, which we're also seeing in different parts of the world, um, especially in Eastern Europe and Latin America, where there are attempts to eliminate, remove gender studies from universities. Again, it's related to the issue of comprehensive sexuality education, uh, which in many places would also include content around gender and sexuality diversity. We can see this, uh, yeah, where there are these attacks on gender studies, there's also an attack happening on sex and gender-based rights. And this is also what we can start to see that this is not only an anti-gender group, as many people, including myself, you know, I've, I've also referred to them as anti-gender, but that they're more accurately described as anti-rights um, because they're also desperately trying to attack the knowledge systems that have 
played such an important role in the civil rights movement, in, you know, feminism and the, and, and gay rights movements. And, and, and it's as though they have recognized that in order to really roll back equal rights and social justice, in order to roll that back and hollow out and erode those kinds of uh, legislative frameworks, that they need to attack the knowledge systems that uphold these demands for equality and justice. So it's as though they are trying to kneecap these movements. And it's a very brutal metaphor, but I think it really reflects the, 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 the violence that is embedded within these movements. And, you know, they, the, the attacks on critical race theory and the attacks on, on gender studies you know, that really go through great lengths to portray themselves as decent and respectable and well-meaning and and loving and all of these these kinds of 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 ways that they try and come across and, and present themselves they do this as a way of obscuring the the real violence that is is made permissible through their through their agendas, through their narratives. We've seen over the past 10 years, I mean, that, and over the past 10 years is when this movement really has, uh, I mean, the pro-family movement really has gained a, a big foothold in many parts of the world and within the United Nations. I mean, we're seeing just a rise in anti-LGBTI violence, you know, transphobic and hate crime and, and homophobic hate crimes and, and murders. And in the United States, for example, and the issues of racism are, you know, they're, they're fortunately becoming more discussed in the public, public domain. But that doesn't mean that they are obviously doesn't mean they are going away by any by any means. And I mean, the need for critical race theory is as important now as it has ever been. And we've got to think what is at stake in, in the efforts of far right groups to to close it down and, and to make it even unthinkable for us to be able to name institutional racism, right, to, to make that an impossible thought is what they're really trying to achieve. So we've got to think about what would the implications of that be for, for racial justice and, and for the ability of, of social justice movements to continue to, to, to struggle to, to name and challenge forms of, of discrimination that are, are going on in a daily basis and at institutional levels. Well, we'll have to leave it there. If people would like to read more of uh, Haley's work, you can look up at Dr. Haley McEwen on the CAR website. Haley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Cam, and, and thank you, Andy. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and yeah, and, and thanks to all of the listeners out there. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio version of the show, but we'll have a few more questions on the podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash We'll see you next week. Seventeen eighty-eight down Sydney Cove, first boat people land, and they say, "Sorry, boys, I gained your love. Swear, gonna steal your land. If you break out your British law, for sure you're gonna hang. Work your life like a convict with a chain on your neck and hands, and they taught us, whoa, black woman, I shall not steal.'" Black man, I shall not steal. Gonna civilize black barbaric life, and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide.
Understood by none, mostly that left hand holds a Bible, the right hand holds a gun. That's oh, black woman, I shall not steal. Said, Hey, black man, thou shalt not steal. We're gonna civilize your black barbaric lives, and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide the genocide. The hypocrisy to what was real. By your Jesus said, Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.